Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 26. Now, I have to be honest with you for a second. Um, this is one of those passages in which if I did not believe that all Scripture was profitable and was given to us by God, if all Scripture wasn't God-breathed and all Scripture wasn't profitable, I would just skip over these particular verses. Because trying to learn about the genealogy and then trying to think about how to preach it to you has, has been a difficult task this week. Hopefully, uh, there's some things from this particular text that I have to share with you today that are an encouragement to you and are the truth rightly divided. Uh, the title of my sermon today is, What's in a Name? And, and maybe your mind immediately goes to a particular place when you hear that phrase, what's in a name? Maybe it goes to maybe one of the most famous places where that phrase was particularly used. And maybe this sounds familiar to you. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What is Montague? Is it nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man? Or be some other name, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo doth thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. This is from Romeo and Juliet, written by William Shakespeare. For those of us that are not Shakespeare fans, let me try to give you a modern English version of that, and without the poetry of the original, it translates to something like this. If only, it is only your name that is my enemy. You are yourself, not just a Montague. What does Montague even mean? It's not about a hand, a foot, an arm, a face, or any other part of your body. You could just take another name. What's so special about a name? The thing that we call a rose would be just as sweet smelling if it were called something else. Likewise, Romeo, if he weren't called Romeo, would still be perfect even if he were called something else. Romeo, lose the surname, and without it, I'm yours. You see, the issue in Romeo and Juliet is that the names of their families divide them. These two belong to families who've been at war with each other, so their love is actually a forbidden love. The curse of sin and hate ends up costing them, in the end, both of their lives. And sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't read Romeo and Juliet, they both die. But can I just suggest to you that in today's day and age, we're still being divided by names. What family you come from, what job title you have. In today's day and age, even now, all the way down to how you define yourself. 
We have to see that this is all part of a greater plan to move us farther and farther away from the God who created us and told us who we are. Now that sin has entered into the world, people will constantly be trying to define themselves in a way that is different than what God created them to be. And let me just say, people are dying for a lack of knowing who they are. The truth is, we will all suffer to the point of death under the curse of sin. But what we're going to see in this particular text is that Christ will keep a people called by his name. With that in mind, I want to encourage you to stand, if you're able, one more time for a reading from the Word of God, Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 10, says this. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Aparshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Aparshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Aparshad lived 35 years, he fathered Selah. And Aparshad lived after he fathered Selah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. And when Selah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Selah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years, and he had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. One of the first things that I will encourage you to see out of this particular passage today is that sins make every other, or sin makes every other name short. We've already heard Peleg mentioned once. He's one of the names that are mentioned out of here back in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25. But I want to see, I want to encourage you to see something in comparison in these, these particular verses that we've seen already. If you go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, we see a genealogy that's discussed there, the genealogy from uh, Adam to Noah. And in some sense, there's a comparison between that genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 and this genealogy here in Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. What we're seeing in both of these genealogies is that the names that they start and end with are very important names. And I want to suggest to you that they're actually righteous bookends of these patriarchs. Martin Luther says it this way. This list of the fathers teaches us the basic doctrine that God has never altogether abandoned his church, even though on some occasions it was larger and on others small, just as also on some occasions its teaching was purer and on others less clear. Let us sustain ourselves with this hope against the great wickedness of the world and of the opponents 
of the world. This has to be in our mind, especially as we compare these two genealogies, because what we're going to find is that in each genealogy, there are 10 fathers, 10 patriarchs who preceded the flood, and 10 in this chapter. But one of the major differences is that we're going to notice immediately is that from Adam to Noah, there's 1,656 years. But in this particular chapter, from Shem to, uh, to Abram, there's only 292 years. That's a difference of 1,364 years. What we're seeing already is that the effect of sin upon the world is causing the lifespan of these men to be less. Psalm chapter 90, verses 9 and 10 talks about this particular issue. It says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Here's the point that I think is being made here. Death that comes into the world through sin causes even the greatest names of history to have a very limited reach. Think about it this way. How long do most rulers have their power? Are presidents four years, at the very maximum eight years? Or or even some of the kings of history that, that you might think of. A king like Alexander the Great. He died at the age of 32 after reigning for 13 years. He's considered one of the greatest kings of the ancient world. Or even Cyrus the Great, who's considered one of the greatest kings of all histories. Even those who he ruled over, there are great things that are said about about him, about this ruler Cyrus. It says, uh, it's quoted in history, referring to Cyrus, it says, And those who were subject to him, he treated with esteem and regard as if they were his own children, while his subjects themselves respected Cyrus as their father. What other man but Cyrus, after having overturned an empire, even died with the title of the father for the people whom he had brought under his power? For it is plain fact that this is a name for one that bestows rather than for one who takes away. Even even this one Cyrus, the book of Ezra talks about, it, it tells us a story as the exiles return in the first year of Cyrus, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. God uses, Ezra, or uses Cyrus to help rebuild Jerusalem. And even though they, they have done things in the past, great things in the past, that may even have some sort of impact on our present day, they themselves can no longer do anything that would either affect well or hurt their name. Even if we can live a long life, if, if we can live 80, 90, or 100 years, how long is that compared to the history of the world? It's, ev- it's barely just a blip on the timeline. Ecclesiastes says it this way. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. You see, here's the, the truth that the previous genealogy and this genealogy reminds us. 
no matter how great your life is or the great things that you might accomplish in your life, you are going to die. Because of the curse of sin, no matter how great our name might be in our lifetime, it will come to an end. You will have an end. But one of the things that this text reminds us immediately is that even though our lives are short, there is hope. And there's hope because these, these names lead to the name, the most important name. Because what's happening in Genesis is that we're moving from a history to the world of the world to the history and lineage of Jesus. The first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis focus on major events. There's probably four that, that you remember. The four major events of the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis are creation, fall, flood, and Babel. Creation, fall, flood, and Babel. But the rest of the book of Genesis focuses on not major events, but on God's people. Starting with Abram that we see who will eventually become Abraham, leading all the way to Christ. You see, what this genealogy is, remembering, or is reminding us is that God has not forgot about his promise in Genesis chapter 3.15 to bring about the one who will put an end to the rule of Satan and bring about salvation for his people. God has not been knocked off track, even in terms of his genealogy of the Savior. What we see in this particular set of verses is God's providential care for his people. Not just history, but what we're seeing happen in the scripture is its chief end is actually the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Johannes Brins says that Shem's line that we're seeing here unfold falls into the primary goal of the sacred scriptures. The primary goal of the sacred scriptures is to describe the offspring of Abraham, who are a people divinely chosen first so that Christ would be born from them, and second, so that they might be custodians of God's promise regarding Christ and when he should come. You see, what's happening in the scriptures at this point is that as God preserves the nation of Israel, he preserves his word, the Bible, and the word, Jesus Christ. What you'll notice immediately in this particular genealogy is that there are some names missing. This genealogy leaves out Ham and Japheth because Shem is the lineage of Jesus. And I want to argue this point that this is actually the most important genealogy because of the inclusion of the precise lifespans and the year that they were born. But I, I want to remind you of this, and I, I don't think that, that this, even though it's a very basic truth, it's one that we often forget. And I've said it in a couple of different ways, but I want to say it very clearly. The Bible is one grand story about Jesus Christ. Each person that we hear about in the scriptures is meant to point 
to the main person of the Scriptures. The main person of the Scriptures is the person and work of Jesus Christ. All of the Scriptures are meant to point a shining light forward to Jesus Christ. All of these names, all of the events, everything that's happening is meant to direct you towards the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. When we realize that this is the case, when we see God for who he truly is, when we understand that the scriptures are pointing towards Jesus Christ, it leaves us with this this sense of, of awe and wonder in who Jesus Christ, where we get to actually enjoy the freedom of taking the name of Christ. What do I mean by that? The world today wants you to be defined by any number of names. Employee, student, retired person, man, woman, they, them. The definition from the world is always changing. And we can actually feel pressured or even boxed into being defined by one of these labels. But for the Christian, any label that we bear must first be defined by Christ. Think about it this way. Salvation in Christ has actually freed you from the captivity of the names and labels that the world wants to give you. You are not bound by being defined by the world. And now you are free to live your life as first and foremost a Christian. Because all that matters is what God thinks of us. It does not matter what the rest of the world wants to define you as. Because listen, brothers and sisters, be reminded what God thinks about us, what he says about us. What he has said in his word is that he loves us so much that he's constantly been on a plan to redeem a people to himself and give us his name. Not the name that the world wants you to have but the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I I want you to think about this just in in case you think I'm isolating this to this genealogy in terms of names. I want you to consider something with me. When you receive the name of another, even in today's day and age, there are typically only one of two ways that that happens. There's one of two names in which you are given the name of another person. Adoption and marriage. You receive the name of another person through adoption or marriage. And I would suggest to you that these are two ultimate symbols of love. Now, think with me about how our salvation is described in the Scriptures. When we read passages like Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, what does it say about our salvation? Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what, brothers and sisters? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son 
into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That means that this lineage that comes from Shem to Abraham is important to us because now we've been adopted into the family of God. This might sound strange to our ears when we read some of these passages because I said there were two ways in which you receive the name of another. You're adopted, and the other, I said, was marriage. Listen to these words in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 4 through 6. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 4 through 6 says this, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will... Forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of your youth. When she, cast, when she is cast off, says your God. Brothers and sisters, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have been adopted by God and we have been brought into his family because he chose us to make us the church, his bride. We have the name of Christ. It's one thing to think about some of these principles in theory, but it's another thing to bring them home and think about them in our own life. We're talking about how the world wants to define us and what labels and names it wants to put on us. But, but if I posed a question to you and, and you honestly answered it, I'm curious how you would answer. The question that we must ask ourselves is this question. Who are you? Who are you? There's some space in your notes if you picked up notes. If, if you sought to answer that question, I wonder what you would really write. And I wonder if what you might find is that you started to define yourself by something other than Christ. And let me just ask it to you this way. Are you trying to define yourself according to the world's terms? Here's maybe an easier way of thinking about it. When you meet someone for the first time, how do you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is, and typically after that, we would define ourselves maybe by our career. I, hello, my name is Nate and I am a pastor. Now I get to cheat on this one because my job is directly tied to Jesus, so I, I can sound more spiritual even though it might, I might wrongly be defined by my job. Many of us are more defined by our careers, our families, or even our hobbies than, than we would like to admit. Let me say it to you this way. If you have taken the name of Christ, it is he who defines who you are. And this is actually good news, because as the creator and the sustainer of the universe, he knows exactly what we should be. 
and he helps us become exactly what he has created us to be. Now, this doesn't mean that we should all be robots for Jesus, but it does mean that we're not confused about who we are because we know what God has created us to be. This is freedom to us. But you must answer for yourself, who are you? Are you first and foremost a child of God, adopted, married into the family of God, or are you something else? But I want to bring to bear again this point upon you that I stressed earlier, but I want to circle it back around and remind you that that life is short. We don't often like to think about our own mortality, but this genealogy and the previous genealogy reminds us that everyone's lifespan is more limited than we would like to think. Each one of us has an expiration date. Maybe you've heard this saying before too. No one makes it out of this life alive. But in Christ, when we step off from this life into eternity, we can be sure that we will spend that eternity with God. Because of Christ, we are guaranteed that we will spend eternity with God in heaven. But, but to know Christ, to know him is not just a head knowledge, it's a belief in your heart that God is perfectly holy and we are not. And in confession of our sin, we turn to God for forgiveness in Christ. His death on the cross paid our sin debt that we could not do enough good works to pay. To know Jesus is to believe that in him we have salvation for our souls and trust him with our eternal destiny. And then death does not have any power over us anymore. Death, where is your sting? And in fact, death becomes the vehicle by which we get to see God. Here's the next question that I want to pose to you in application. Are you trusting God with the future? You see, one of the things that's clear again in this text is that God is completely in control and has never lost control. But maybe it's not death that you fear the most, but the bleak future of our world. You see the events unfolding around us, or maybe even the events of your life. And the future, if we're honest, looks terrifying. But this genealogy, again, reminds us that God has and will always have things under control. And, and let me just say this to you and let this resonate in your heart and mind. You can trust God with the future of our world. Let, let me say that to you again. You can trust God with the future of our world. And let me try to make it even more personal to you. You can trust God with your future. You can trust God with your future. Remember what we have seen so far in Genesis. God creates the world and mankind sin and brings death into the world. And it seems like everything is broken and wrong. But this genealogy again reminds us that no person or group of people can mess up God's plan no matter how hard they try. 
so you can trust God with the future. Whatever seems so uncertain in your future, know that God already has a plan for his glory and your good through it. You can trust God with your future. This should feel like freedom and fresh breath of air to you. But here is what I want to say to you. Because for many years, uh, there's been a, a song that coined a phrase that I think is totally unbiblical. Uh, it's that song, uh, Jesus, Take the Wheel. I don't know if that's even popular now. I'm probably dating myself. But it's this idea that you can completely let go of everything and just trust God to make it happen. And although there is some truth that God is going to absolutely work out his plan according to his will, there must be a call as we trust God to take action. You see, just because God is in control doesn't mean that we should sit on our hands. Trusting the plan of God should actually lead to action. Here's the way that I want to encourage you to think about this. Think with me here. For most of us, there's something that you know that you need to do. There's something that God is calling you to do that you know that you need to do and you're not doing it. You've been putting it off. Maybe you even set it as one of your New Year's resolutions. You've already forgot about it. And I can appreciate the fact that it's being delayed. Because maybe you've been delaying it because you fear the consequences that will happen as a result of what you do. Or maybe you just fear how hard it's going to be. But listen, brothers and sisters. If God is in control, then you can trust him and get busy doing what he's calling you to do. If he's in control, what you do will work out exactly as he plans it to work out. So whatever it is that you've been putting off, Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, whatever it is that you know that you need to do, trust the fact that God is in control of our world, he's in control of your world, and get busy doing it. Take action. Make today the day that you start to take action in terms of what God is calling you to do. And know that he's going to work it out perfectly according to his plan. Will you pray with me? Let's ask God to give us the strength to be what he's called us to be and to do what he's called us to do. Will you pray with me? Lord, at many points in times, the world around us seems so unsure. Even our own lives feel shaky at best. But help us to be reminded that you are working out your perfect plan and that you've adopted us, you've called us into your family, you've given us your name to allow us to be defined by who you are, not by the standards of the world, but by your standard from your word. 
as a result of seeing these things, Lord, help us today to take action doing what you've called us to do. Let us not be people who sit on our hands with our head in the sand, but instead help us to be people of action who trust you and your perfect plan to do exactly what you've willed to do for our glory and your good. Help us, Lord, to see what you're truly like and to be marveled by your glory and your grace to us and be busy working out our salvation with fear and trembling for your glory. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.